Pastor Patrick Hines, and welcome to today's uh, live program. And uh, sorry, I can't really put the link up sooner so people can kind of be waiting because that typically doesn't work and it'll, it'll like stall out. So I have to like, I, I have to create it and start it immediately. Today, I'd like to try to finish the book of Ephesians if I can. And I wanted to share uh, an experience that I had before I start reading um, the scriptures here. And that is when I was down in Orlando at Reformation on the campus of Reformation Bible College. Let me move this lamp over here a little bit without getting it in the picture so I can see my Bible a little bit better. Um, I was able to go on a tour of Reformation Bible College uh, campus there. Things right there. Um, and got to see the, the campus and got to see the original sign, the, the Ligonier Valley Study Center. They had that in one of the administrative buildings and got to see uh, all sorts of, of really incredible things. St. Andrew's Chapel was really a beautiful uh, place and got to listen to the choir. You might have seen on my channel, I posted a video, uh, just a short video of the choir. My daughter's in that choir. And one of the things that took us through was the rare books room. And that was was very um, interesting. It was very moving. And I got to see a, a 1541 edition, Latin edition of John Calvin's Institutes of the Christian Religion. And it was a, a very large book. I mean, it was it was bigger than any, any book I have in here. I guess they, they just made them pretty big back then. And uh, I guess they probably didn't have things like reading glasses and stuff. So you had to get real big font, but it was, the books were just huge. And they had, um, very, very, very old, hundreds of years old editions of the works of some of the Puritans. And they had a, a page of Charles Spurgeon's sermon notes in, in his handwriting, uh, in a case there. And that was, that was pretty neat. Um, one of the things that showed us though, in the, in the tour guide, um, got kind of emotional talking about this. And I, and I was, I was, um, more distracted. I was a little distracted by how, how moved she was to tell us this, but there was a, a sheet of paper with uh, Chinese writing on it. And she told uh, the group, the story of, of where that came from. And back when, uh, it was illegal and I, you know, really, I guess technically it still is illegal to be a Christian in China and Bibles were illegal there in China. Um, uh, probably about, this has probably been maybe, maybe during the, during the communist era. I can't remember exactly the dates, but but the, the story she told, though, the Chinese Christians at, the, at that time, whenever that was, could not have Bibles. And there was such an incredible um, need for God's word, uh, but they just didn't have access to it. So they knew that some of their uh, brothers and sisters in the Lord before that, that time had been buried with uh, copies of portions of scripture in their coffins. And so these folks were so desperate to get scripture that they um, they actually went tomb raiding, and they would they would dig up uh, their departed Christian brethren, and I think the, as I recall, what she said was they would take out the portions of scripture that they were buried with, and and make copies of them. They wouldn't they wouldn't take it. They they would put the the portions back in the coffin, as I recall her saying. But that was one of those copies. It was a it was a um, a bit of scripture that had been buried with a Christian, and this uh, tour guide was saying, you know, we take for granted that we have these nicely bound Bibles, you know, very often with study notes, and we're distracted by dumb videos on YouTube and short little meaningless, frivolous entertainment nonsense on 
TikTok and whatever else it is. And she just made the point that um, you know, these people so loved the word of God that they were willing to go through that trouble of digging someone up just to get a, a page or two of scripture that they would write in their own handwriting. And I'm sitting here, and this my study here is filled with Bibles. I've got so many Bibles in here, and I love Bibles, and I've always I've collected Bibles. I've got study Bibles, and I've got my my Bible here that I read from right in front of me. It's you know I had a, a custom made uh, leather case from uh, Reformed Sage for it, fits it perfectly, and I, this is the Bible that I read from. And what a blessing it is to have God's word. And I was just thinking about whoever those people were that, and there's a story. There's a story behind that page of Chinese writing. Uh, somebody wanted the Bible, wanted a, just a little bit, just a little portion of scripture in their own handwriting so badly that they dug up um, a deceased Christian and um, were able to, to make a copy of a portion of scripture. I don't know what it was. Obviously, I can't read Chinese. Um, but we were moving along too quickly. I couldn't read all the little little things in that rare book room that I, I wanted to, but really convicted by that. So I, what I'm doing here right now, being able to um, read scripture and just comment on it and talk about it, uh, what a huge blessing it is to have the Bible in its entirety, to own scripture and to own God's word. Ephesians chapter six, children, obey your parents in the Lord for this is right. So children, uh, you need to do that. Obey your parents in the Lord. It doesn't mean you only obey them if they're Christians. It means that in general, children should obey their parents. Now, obviously, Ephesians was written to a church there. So this is addressing the the children uh, that were present there. I think that it is significant that the children were not in children's church. Uh, They were there uh, when these things were read. And the idea of removing kids from the service... Um, you know, to do something else instead of worshiping or, or listening to a sermon or whatever would have shocked and horrified our forefathers in the faith. Um, the idea of taking kids out of the service right before the sermon starts or right before the worship starts and putting them somewhere else where they can watch. Uh, I remember there was a church in Cincinnati um, and they had kids sitting in a, a room with one adult sitting there on her phone and the kids were watching Charlotte's Web, a cartoon on a TV, while, the, while everyone else is worshiping. And that is so ridiculous. I don't even know what to say to something like that. But we should not have a children's sermon. You know, everybody come forward for the children's sermon. I remember there was a, um, I think it was a far side. And um, the, the woman and her husband are leaving the, a, a worship service. And the... Uh, the wife says to the husband, what did you think of the children's sermon? And he said, I thought the whole thing was the children's sermon. <laughs> but that's just pure nonsense that, that churches would ever do anything like that. If, I, if you do that or, or you're in a church that does that, I'm sorry. I'm not trying to offend you or upset you or step on your toes. Um, and if you feel like your toes have been stepped on or you feel offended, I, I assure you I don't care. Um, that's just wrong to, for kids to leave the service. Now... I understand, you know, and since I'm an elder and I've been a pastor for a long, long time and I have a huge family, um, having a nursery available, it's not, it's not mandatory. It's not mandatory, but we do have a nursery, um, and the service is piped in to there, uh, so people can, can participate and can hear the, the sermon and, and all that kind of stuff. 
I understand that for little ones, for like one and two year olds. Uh, but after that, you know, what, what we say here at our church is uh, three, once a child's three, they need to um, uh, be able to sit still. And, you know, at times some parents got to take kids out and spank them. You know, we had to do that if they're being unruly or, or whatever. But children are addressed directly. They're also addressed, and I believe it's in the book of Colossians. Uh, they're, they're addressed directly as if they're there. And we're told when, uh, I believe it's in the book of Ezra and Nehemiah, that the children were there for the Feast of Tabernacles. They were there for the dedication of the temple. And they were there when the scriptures were read and taught by the Levites. The kids were there. And so it's very, very important um, that children um, are, are raised to believe that they are participants in worship. Okay, They're not just there uh, to, to sit there. They're not just there to, to observe. They, they are to take a hymnal and open it and try to sing. They are to, to discipline their wandering mind. That's, that's, one thing, that's one thing that the church, in a, at least in the United States of America, has really not done well. Is we, we really think that we've got to do something. We've got to have a, a certain feel or a certain music style. Or our ministers need to be really funny. Or they need to t- stand up there and talk about themselves in a very candid kind of disarming way and talk all about themselves and their own personal struggles and things like that because that's what people identify with and people don't they don't want to have to discipline their wandering minds minds to to pay attention to anything and so we've got to accommodate and accommodate and accommodate and i say no no the bar's got to be raised okay and uh, i've been criticized a lot you're you're too you're too heady and um you know it's you have to like pay such close attention well good the, the Christian faith requires that we do that. Okay, the, the, the Bible uh, gives us words and sentences. It's, it's profoundly deep and theological and, and philosophical, and, and it penetrates to our hearts. And we've got to be able to, to think clearly and focused. And that's one thing I'll tell you. Um, <laughs> expositional preaching and uh, doctrinal focus, which is, I don't know how you can preach without being doctrinally focused, because every, every word of scripture is doctrine. Everything in it's teaching and doctrine and theology. All of it is. Uh, but people really think, oh, I shouldn't have to discipline my wandering mind. And you should keep me in stitches. And you should tell us all sorts of little anecdotes about yourself and, and your life and your own struggles and things like that. You're not there to talk about yourself. You're not there to talk about yourself. Okay, There's a, a great passage of scripture. I think about um, this passage a lot. 2 Corinthians 4 verse 5. Is that what it is? Uh, 2 Corinthians 4, 5. Yeah, for we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord. Okay, we're not there to talk about us. We're there to talk about God, and we're there to talk about the truth, we're to talk about Scripture, and to preach the truth, and preach Christ, and preach Him crucified. And we're to preach it to the whole family, to uh, the kids, to everybody. Okay, and that means we have to we have to be disciplined. We have to be self-disciplined to keep our minds focused. So children, obey your parents in the Lord, okay? You didn't have to go down to somewhere else, to a, to a children's church area to address them. They were, they were sitting there for this. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with promise, that it may be well with you and you may live long on the earth. All right, so there's a commandment that is very largely dis- discarded today. In fact, there's a passage in the book of Proverbs that makes me think about um, our generation constantly. The generation that I'm part of and the generation that's rising right now. Proverbs 30, verses 11 through 14. 
uh, is a block of text that our generation needs to hear and needs to heed and act upon um, and take on the nose because I think it's very true of a lot of us. <clears throat> there is a generation that curses its father <coughs> excuse me, and does not bless its mother. Okay, we live in a generation that has morbidly dishonored its parents and its elders. There is a generation that curses its father. That's the generation that's alive right now. And does not bless its mother. That's the generation alive right now. Our kids today, young people today are, you know, th there are some wonderful ones. There, there are. But so many are just a bunch of victims and blame shifters. And every, every bad thing they ever do, every foolish decision, every sinful, self-destructive move they ever make, it's someone else's fault. It's their parents' fault. That's what this is talking about. Proverbs 30, 11, there's a generation that curses its father and does not bless its mother. There is a generation that is pure in its own eyes, yet is not washed from its filthiness. Yep, pure in their own eyes. There's a generation that's pure in its own eyes. We can't do anything wrong. And if we, if we apologize to you or we, or we ask your forgiveness, it's because you made us do something. Okay, there, there's no owning of, of guilt. It's we are pure in our own eyes, yet as the text says, is not washed from its filthiness. There's a generation, oh, how lofty are their eyes, and their eyelids are lifted up. There's a generation whose teeth are like swords, and whose fangs are like knives, to devour the poor from off the earth, and the needy from among men. A foul mouth, their, their teeth are like swords, their, their fangs are like knives. Okay, and just another passage I read uh, just the other day um, in Proverbs chapter 2. Yeah, Let's listen to this. <clears throat> Discretion will preserve you. Understanding will keep you. Okay, you want to be wise. You want to follow God's truth, God's word, and the, and the wisdom of God in Proverbs. So it will guard you and keep you to deliver you from the way of evil. From the man who speaks perverse things. From those who leave the paths of uprightness to walk in the ways of darkness. And listen to verse 14, Proverbs 2, 14. Who rejoice in doing evil and delight in the perversity of the wicked. There, there are people who rejoice in doing evil. It's their great joy to do evil. Yeah. And they delight in what? Perversity. Whatever's twisted, whatever's vile, whatever is against God, against God's plan, whatever's perverted and twisted, they delight in it. In Proverbs 2.15, whose ways are crooked and who are devious in their paths. Okay, that's another description. Those are, those are people, you got to guard yourself from them. You got to be careful. You got to watch out for them. And we've got to equip our children not to be taken in by people like that and not to be misled by them. Okay, uh, Proverbs, or, uh, Ephesians 6, verse uh, 3. And you, fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. Uh, that's something I'm guilty of. I've done that before. I've provoked my children to wrath. Um, but it's very interesting to me that the scriptures don't say to mothers, mothers don't provoke your children to wrath. Typically, this is a problem that fathers will have because we get impatient, we get cranky, we're upset with ourselves for this or that, or we're, we're not having a good day. And we can be harsh and we can provoke our kids to anger and provoke them to wrath. But instead of doing that, we're to bring them up in the training and the admonition of the Lord. We're to bring them up 
so that they see here's how a godly man handles stress. And here's how a godly man commits things to God in prayer when he's stressed out about something or when things aren't going well or he's worried about something. That's what we are to model as fathers, If those of you who are fathers. Okay, verse number five. Bond servants, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh. And I think that there's a direct parallel here uh, with uh, employers and employees. We are all, in a sense, bond servants. Um, if we, we work for someone um, or we work in general, uh, we can be self-employed, but you still are doing work for, for, some, for another human being. Uh, you are to be obedient to them. You are to submit to them, um, according to the flesh, with fear and trembling, in sincerity of heart, as to Christ, not with eye service as men-pleasers. Okay? You don't just do your work and work hard and be diligent when you think people might see you, but you're to do it all the time. Not with eye service as men-pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, with good will, doing service as to the Lord and not to men. Knowing that whatever good anyone does, he will receive the same from the Lord, whether he is a slave or free. So always remember that God is not unjust to forget us, and that he does notice, whether any other human beings notice it or not, when we work with integrity, and when we are diligent, and when we do what we're supposed to do, and we do our duty, we may receive no recognition for any of that from other human beings, but God always sees all of it. <clears throat> that's why it says that we're to do that in sincerity of heart as to the Lord and not to men. And I know it's easy to say that, and I, I've had jobs that I did not particularly enjoy or like, and it was a real challenge to stay motivated and to want to work hard. Uh, there, there were jobs I had, especially early on, where you know, they're minimum wage and you, you, you do these this hard manual labor, and um, it was hard. It was hard to stay focused. It was hard to want to be a good example when you're doing that. But that's what we're called to do. <clears throat> that's one of the, the distinguishing characteristics of a Christian. I always think of Joseph, you know, poor Joseph, who was sold off into slavery and um, was a slave in Potiphar's house. And I'm sure that he did the most menial labor that a human being could ever do uh, in that house. But he was a man of integrity in the way he did it. And because of that, God blessed him and Potiphar noticed that. And even though he was falsely accused and ended up in jail, um, Joseph works very hard and is a good prisoner, is very dutiful. And the, the prison, the guy that, that's, that runs the prison recognizes that Joseph's a good guy. And he entrusts him with everything, with the running of that prison. So there's a proverb. Do you see a man who excels in his work? He will stand before kings. He will not stand before unknown men. So no matter what you do, do it with all your heart and do it well. Uh, be someone who does even menial tasks with all your heart and, and do it passionately, do it right. And that, that's a real important thing. Uh, you know, so often um, there's, there's a Christian schools. I'm thankful for Christian schools. Uh, but there, were, there have been some I've heard of through the years where they, they so emphasize test scores. And we, we can parse Latin verbs better than anyone else in the country. And... Are we, we have people that got a perfect score on their ACT and a perfect score on the SAT and yada, yada, yada. That's all great and fine. I'm glad for those academic achievements. But I've said for years, if you really want to find out where a teenage boy is, you really want to find out his character, wash a car with him. Wash a car that's been parked under a tree where lots of birds like to perch and the sun's been baking down on it for six weeks. And see what it looks like when he's done. I don't care what he got on his, on his ACT. 
Okay, whether all the bird droppings, the crusted, baked-on bird droppings are gone is going to tell you a lot more about who he is. Okay, and it says in, I think it's 2nd or 3rd John, uh, I have no greater joy than to know that my children are walking in the truth. And that, that, to me, that's really the test. I don't really care about your SAT or ACT score. It's, are you walking in the truth? What is your, what is your WIT? What is your, not the ACT, but the WIT, walking in truth score? What's that score? Because that's really going to determine uh, what kind of a person, what kind of a, a young man or a young woman you really are. Do you work hard when nobody can see you? Do you have integrity when no one can see you? <clears throat> Verse 9, And you, masters, do the same things to them, giving up, threatening, knowing that your own master also is in heaven, and there is no partiality with him. Verse 10, now we move into a really important section of Ephesians, really here towards the end. Um, this, this section about the armor of God and spiritual warfare. This is a passage that you know I think about a lot and um, I know I know it's very hard. It's very hard to tell what is a spiritual attack and, and what's not. What what is more kind of coincidental? You know, what is something demonic or or not? Well, it is hard to to, to disentangle what's circumstantial and what's actually um, satanic uh, in its origin. Uh, but anyway. Uh, verse 10. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Okay, our strength does not come from our own resolve. Our strength doesn't come from our physical prowess or our physical fitness uh, or how, how intelligent we are. The strength and the might that we have is in the Lord. It's Christ. He's the source of it all. Verse 11. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. And I'll tell you, every time I read these next few verses, I just think we have got to understand what this armor really is, like what it means to wear the armor of God. Because I think it may surprise you what it actually is. Okay? Verse 12. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age. Now, what are principalities, powers, and the rulers of the darkness of this age? It's demons. Satan and demons. Very real. They're very real, and they are present. They are not infinite, but they are present in this world. They are at work in this world, and we wrestle against them. And the fight against abortion, the fight against all the, the unbelief and apostasy and heresy. Yes, there are human agents who are at work, who are being used, but ultimately the source of all of that is, is satanic and is from those principalities and powers. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood. We wrestle against the devil, the devil and his agents. Let's think of that passage, I think it's in 2 Timothy chapter 2, uh, speaking about you know praying that God may grant repentance to those who have been taken captive by Satan to do his will. Now, they don't know that's what they're doing, but that's exactly what they're doing. People that promote evolution have been taken captive by the devil to do his will. People who are abortion providers, have, whether they're atheists or not, have been taken captive by Satan to do his will. Liberals who apostatize in the church and preach false doctrine... They may think of themselves as godly people, but they've been taken captive by Satan, by the principalities and powers, to do his will. So our war is not against flesh and blood, it's against, against the forces of darkness and the wicked ideas that they spread. It's a war about truth. 
What is it that sets men free? What did Jesus say in John chapter 8? The truth shall set you free. The truth is what does it. That's why we emphasize sound teaching, sound doctrine, the true gospel, the way that we do. The only hope for this world is that it comes to know Christ, that it comes to know the true gospel. Okay, now listen to what he says here. <clears throat> the Holy Spirit speaking to us. Verse 13. Therefore, since, since you are, are at war with the devil and his demons, and not against human beings, therefore take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all, to stand. Now listen, listen to what each piece of our suit of armor is. Listen to it. Stand therefore, having girded your waist with truth. How do we do that? How do I as a person gird my waist with truth? I read my Bible obsessively. Jesus prayed on the night before he was crucified. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. You want to gird your waist with truth. And if you don't know scripture, and it's not in your mind and heart, and you don't read Romans constantly, and you don't read the Psalms, and you don't read Genesis and Exodus, and you don't read the Proverbs, your waist is vulnerable. You're, You're going into battle. You're going into battle against a very heavily armed enemy, naked. You don't know the truth? You're going to lose that fight. You're going to be no match for the forces that are arrayed against us. Yes, our God is greater than the devil and his minions. Our God is able to save us. He is able to protect us. But if you run naked into battle, you're going to get hurt. Some of those darts, they're going to hit you right in the heart. They're going to hit you right in the head. Then what are you going to do? You know, I saw a documentary about, um, uh, what's the name of that? It's a, uh, the, the Iceni people and, uh, the warrior princess Boudica, uh, when they fought against the Roman legions there in, um, uh, in England and those, those, uh, they were out, the Romans were outnumbered badly by these crazy, um, pagan warriors and these crazy pagan warriors charged at the Roman legions naked had nothing on and the Romans threw their pili those spears and just mowed them down I always think when I read this passage I think of how crazy that is these trained heavily armed heavily armored Roman legionaries well trained well equipped well fed with their shields and they know how to work together and they know how to throw those spears and everything they're going to charge against that naked that's crazy and it was a slaughter and the Romans just just crushed Boudicca's army. But if you don't know the truth, you might as well be one of those pagans going up against the well-trained, well-fed, well-equipped army of Roman legionaries. Stand therefore, having girded your waist with truth. Having girded your waist with truth. Do you know the truth? Do you know the scriptures really well? And now forget the guy who, yeah, I just haven't been reading my Bible lately. Do I really need to do that? Come on. Really? You want to go to battle against the devil himself, butt naked? Having put on the breastplate of righteousness. 
You know, what's interesting is that that term there, I believe, as I recall, <clears throat> having studied this in the past, I believe it's the term dekaiasune, which is the exact same term for justification. In fact, I, I think maybe that is a, uh, might be a better translation of that. So Ephesians 6, 14 in Greek here. Uh, the breastplate of, yes, it is. The breastplate of righteousness. You've put on the thoraka taste dekaiasunes. The breastplate of justification, the gospel. Of course, he mentions the gospel here later too, but the breastplate of righteousness. So if you don't know the gospel, you don't know what justification is, and you think that faith is obedience or some some goofy false teaching like that, uh, your whole chest is exposed. Your breastplate is exposed. Okay, your This part of your body is vulnerable to attack. So you need to be righteous legally. With the imputed righteousness, you have the breastplate of righteousness. Having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Okay, so, so far, truth, justification, the gospel. What is that? Theology. Theology. Do you know the theology of scripture? If you don't, you're going into battle against the most powerful enemy you can imagine naked you don't know the truth you don't know the categories of scripture you don't know the distinction between justification and sanctification you don't know what saving faith is you're gonna get your head handed to you devil's gonna stomp you down like you're nothing gird your waist with truth you don't know the scriptures that part of you is vulnerable you don't have the breastplate of righteousness on. You're going to get hit with the spears and the sword strikes and everything else. You're not going to be protected from the enemy. You're going to be vulnerable. Every attack's going to win. You're going to be defenseless. I don't care how tough, how strong, how whatever you think you are. If you don't know the theology of scripture, you're going into battle naked. And you're going to get your head handed to you. You're going to get your butt kicked. The gospel, righteousness, and truth. That's theology. That's theology. That's the doctrine of scripture. You don't know that? You are easy pickings for the enemy. The roaring lion is have no problem. No problem running you down and with one swipe of his paw tearing you in half. Above all, taking the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. What is that? The shield of faith, the shield of belief, meaning I believe the truth. I believe in the righteousness of God imputed to me. I believe the gospel. And that, that, that faith in the word of God and in the truth of God and the gospel of Christ, that will stop those fiery darts. Now, as I said, it's hard to tell now, what is a satanic attack and what's not. But there have been a few times, and I'm sure that my listeners, you know, my, my huge, huge crowd of listeners could tell stories where you knew something was, was evil, was satanic in its origin. Sometimes you can't tell. Most of the time you can't tell. There have been times that thoughts have come into my mind literally out of nowhere. And I thought, that was a dart. That was a smart bomb from Satan. Where did that desire come from? It didn't come from God. I don't think it came from me. I've been reading my Bible lately. I've, I've been praying hard. I've been you know, fighting the good fight. Where, where did that come from? 
sometimes that stuff is from Satan. The suggestions of Satan. Our confession puts it that way. The fiery darts of the wicked one. That's the Holy Spirit talking. So he's got darts he's going to throw at you. And dear one, whoever you are, you're a professing Christian. If you don't know the truth, you don't know scripture very well, you don't understand the righteousness of God as a breastplate, You don't have, your feet are not shod, they're not covered with the preparation of the gospel of peace. And you don't believe those, if you don't know them, you can't really believe them very strongly. You're not going to be able to extinguish those darts. See, there's a there's such an emphasis today. There's um, among some young men, I think today it's I want to be tough, I want to be athletic, and I want to be super strong, and I, I want to be a jujitsu expert, and, th- and this, that, and the other thing. Well, that's great. I'm glad you can you can armbar the whole world. Bo- bodily discipline exercise profits a little, but this this is the true measure of a man. This is the true measure of a man. How well do you love your wife? Do you love your church? Do you pray for your pastor, for your elders? Do you pray for the men with, with targets on the back of their heads? That Satan would love nothing more than to, to destroy them, to destroy their credibility, to destroy their ministries? True measure of a man is this stuff. Do you know the truth? Do you understand righteousness, justification? Are your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of, of peace? And do you believe it? Do you engage the spiritual disciplines so that the fire burns bright, so that your faith is strong? If it's not, those fiery darts from Satan, they're going to stick right in your head. They're going to stick you right in the temple. Those evil thoughts, those evil desires, maybe things that you thought were gone, suddenly come back, suddenly rear their heads. If you know the truth, and you're covered with the breastplate of righteousness, of justification, and you know the gospel, and you've got that shield of faith, that shield of faith, those fiery darts are going to bounce right off. And you're going to win. And you're going to be victorious over. Those attempts of Satan to trip you, to destroy you, to drag you into the hole of discouragement, and I'm defeated, oh, I did it again. And, you know, I just can't seem to, I just can't seem to overcome this, this sin. It's got me in a death grip. I just, just won't let me go. You will overcome these things in Christ. Gird your waist with truth. Put on the breastplate of justification, of righteousness. Put the gospel of peace over your feet and take the shield of faith. And you will be able, with the shield of faith, to quench the fiery darts of the wicked one. What is that all about there? The truth, justification, righteousness, the gospel? It's theology. You don't know theology, you don't know God. Verse 17, and take the helmet of salvation. What is salvation? It's theology. By grace you have been saved through faith. Salvation is from the wrath of God. What are we saved from? People talk about, well, I've been saved, I've been saved, I've been saved. Saved from what? Saved from the avenging wrath of God. I trust in Christ. Christ took that away. Christ took God's wrath away. His righteous wrath against me, against all my sins. I've been saved from it. That's my helmet. That's what's going to protect my mind. 
from being penetrated by the darts and the immoral thoughts and the pride, vainglorious garbage that comes at me from every direction. And the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Wow, how much could we say about that? How much could we say about that? You have all these defensive weapons, which you know about the truth. You're the breastplate of righteousness, and your feet are covered with the gospel of peace, and you've got the, the shield of faith and the helmet of salvation, but you also have the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, our offensive weapon. You know, one of my cousins uh, long ago, he, he always said, i got to bring my sword, got to have my sword. He always had a Bible with him. And I uh, only ever saw him you know, a handful of times, but he, he always had a, a zeal. And I remember him saying that, got to have my sword, got to have my sword. Of course, he was from Louisiana. He's a very, very thick southern accent. Got to have my sword. Sword of the Spirit. Carry your Bible with you. Take it with you. Just carry it in public. I mean, nice-sized Bible. People will ask you about it. Or people will look at you and think you're weird or something. I'm going to take your sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. So there's what you do. That's what you need. You need to know all that stuff. You've got to know theology. You've got to know the Word of God. You've got to believe it strongly. That's the, the shield with which you quench the fiery darts. And the more you study, and the more you read Scripture, and the more it penetrates into your mind and heart, and the more you turn off the dumb gadgets and the stupid video games and the, the, the endless barrage of suggested videos you should watch on YouTube, and the more you replace all that trash with the truth of God, the more you'll extinguish those darts. Satan will get worn out on you. You won't even want to mess with you anymore. No matter what he does, he can't, he can't seem to hit you. He'll go pick on someone easier. That's the true measure of a man. Verse 18, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit. I want to encourage uh, my listeners, if you've not read the book of Nehemiah lately, you should just read the book of Nehemiah. One of the things you see all the way through that book is Nehemiah constantly has this, this line of communication going up with God. <clears throat> and I prayed to the God of heaven, and I prayed to the God of heaven. Before something big happens, you know, when he's standing there at the, in the first chapter, you know, the king sees, Nehemiah looks very sad. He just heard about, you know, Jerusalem's in ruins, and it's, you know, the smoke is ascending, and the people there are in great derision. And here he is in captivity, and the people, you know, Jerusalem's been destroyed. The temple destroyed. The wall has been broken down, and he's, he's just heartbroken about it, heartsick about it fasting and weeping and praying and he's the king's cupbearer so this guy has an audience with the king the king sees him Nehemiah what's the matter this is this can only be sorrow of heart and Nehemiah you know wants to be real careful because his life could be in danger I mean if you're a subject of one of the most powerful men in the world that that king wants wants his subjects to be happy I mean if they're all sad it reflects poorly on his leadership right so immediately, Nehemiah is frightened. And before he opens his mouth, though, it says in the text of Nehemiah 1, and I prayed to the Lord of heaven. I prayed to the God of heaven. All the way through the book, he's praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit. He realizes, I don't have the wisdom that I need. If someone comes and asks you a question and they need your counsel, while they're talking to you, you need to throw up a line of communication. Lord, give me wisdom here. I'm not sure what to say. Lord, help me. Guide me. Help me to give good counsel. 
and you feel your temper starting to get up because you're upset about this or that, or you, you don't have enough money to pay this dental bill or, or whatever, and you, you feel yourself starting to get irritated and you, you know you're going to end up having a fight with your wife or your husband or with one of your kids, and you, you feel that sense of irritation, Lord, I need your help. Lord, I need your help. Lord, I need your help. Help me. Help me. I can't overcome this simple tendency without you. I need you. Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, in the Spirit of God there, Holy, the Holy Spirit. Being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. Pray for yourself. Pray for your stand against temptation, against the wiles of the devil, against his fiery darts. And pray for your fellow believers. At any given moment, if you're a member of a church, that church is in need of your prayers. And the people there need your prayers. Everybody's kids need your prayers. There is no shortage. There is never an end to the things you can pray for. And you don't have to be someplace private. You can be driving. You can have your eyes open. But keep those lines of communication up to God. Keep those lines of communication. Lord, I know this person's not saved. Please save them. Please save them. Please save them. Please save them. Verse 19, Paul asks for prayer for him. After he tells him, pray for all this stuff and know the truth and be uh, have your breastplate of righteousness and the, the shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace and have the, the shield of faith, the sword of the spirit, praying always. And then he says in verse 19, and pray for me. Pray for me that utterance may be given to me, that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains that in it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. And Paul asked those churches, pray for me. Paul's an apostle. Paul could heal people. Paul had those apostolic sign and wonder gifts. And you know, he asks for what seems to be so mundane in comparison, just the regular average prayers of regular average working pew-sitting Christians. Yeah. Don't think for a second that that doesn't make a difference. Your prayers are everything. Your prayers mean everything. When people once in a while send me a note or send me something or an email, I've been praying for you, Pastor. I prayed for you this morning. I cannot even begin to tell you how much that means to me. If people stop praying for me, I'm going to fail. Paul seems to really, really think that. If you guys don't pray for me, you know I'm not going to be able to make the truth known the way I should. I'm not going to open my mouth as boldly as I should. He says it twice, that I may open my mouth boldly. And then in verse 20, that in it, I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. I think he was tempted not to be very bold. It was easier not to be bold. It's hard to be bold. You're going to offend people. You're going to upset people. You're going to have enemies if you're bold. So Paul says, pray that I'll be bold. So I would ask the same thing. Pray that I'll be bold. As a minister of the gospel, pray that I'll have guts, that I'll have courage, that I'll be bold, as I should be. Verse 21. But that you also may know my affairs and how I am doing, Tychicus, a beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will make all things known to you, whom I have sent to you for this very purpose, that you may know our affairs and that he may comfort your hearts. Peace to the brethren and love with faith from God the Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all those who love our Lord Jesus Christ.
What a great book. Every time, every time I read the, uh, Ephesians, I just think, what a, what a treasure house of truth. Those first three chapters of doctrine. Those first three chapters of, of truth and what Christ has accomplished. The theology of it all is just glorious. And then you get Ephesians 4, 5, and 6. Those great chapters of application. Put off the old man. Put on the new. Be renewed in the spirit of your mind. Be imitators of God. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. He who loves his wife loves himself. That's one of the most important ways the kingdom grows is husbands loving their wives. I think there's a whole generation of wives out there that they don't feel loved. They don't feel loved by that man they handed their heart to when they married him. Should not be the case. Should not be the case. Okay. Let's see. Wow. A lot of chat, chat going on here. There's New Reformation Apologetics. There's Bill Elrod. Hello, sir. Uh, good, Mason O. Good afternoon. Pasture. <laughs> That's funny. Pastor. I know, I know what you meant. Pastor. Yeah, not P-A-S-T-E-R. Paster. Paster. Pastor. Okay. A Garcia family. Amen. No to Children's Church. That's right. Yeah. What are the, the Puritans, like Matthew Henry, and I was just thinking... Um, guys that wrote a lot about family stuff, they would they would roll over in their graves to see. They'll come forward for the children's sermon, and then you, they they get you know sent off to go um, watch Charlotte's Web or something. I mean, it's just that's appalling. It's absolutely appalling. Okay, I made the live. Hey, there's Rob Gibbs. It was a privilege to have seen uh, seen life before the ubiquitous element uh, internet. Yeah, cell phones and social media. Yeah. Yeah, I remember life before cell phones and life before the internet. The thing is, though, I would encourage you, make technology work for you and have it on, on your terms. Uh, this is only going to be useful to me in my Christian life, and to the extent that it's not, it's going to be discarded. That's the way you need to look at it, because technology is a blessing. I'm not a Luddite. I don't think that we should, you know, well, let's, let's, let's withdraw and be Amish. No, put the stuff into the service of God. Now, you have a cell phone? Like, right, I try to do a lot of good with my cell phone. There's a lot of podcasts on here and a lot of good apps, the Ligonier apps on there and the RTS uh, virtual app is on there. And, uh, you know, my kids always get mad my phone. I don't even leave it. I don't have you have a password on it. And the kids say, you don't have any games on here. I know uh, that's because I don't want to waste my time on games. Although there's one game on there that I'll let them play, but I don't, I actually don't even like to play it. Um, make, make technology work for the Lord like a lot of, of good ministries have done and make, get that stuff available. That's why I do this stuff is to try to be, you know, a small voice for the cause of truth. Cause I don't hear of a whole lot of, a whole lot of truth, you know, anymore, at least not clear much anymore. And so that's why I do what I do. Okay. Jesus answered Satan for it is written. That's right. That's, that's a great point. New reformation apologetics, uh, in Matthew four and Luke four, when he was in the wilderness there, when, when Satan came to Jesus to tempt him, the son of God who could have dislocated Satan's head from his shoulders. He just answers him with scripture. It is written. It is written. It is written, he said. And when Satan misinterpreted scripture, uh, Jesus shows him that he's misinterpreting it. So we have to not only have the sword of the spirit, we've got to know how to handle it. Okay, Because a Bible that is not known very well can be like giving a gun to a three-year-old. Okay, It's not a good idea. Bill Elrod, I wonder how much reach Satan has uh, as far as how many direct interactions he has with people not being omnipresent. Um, yeah, I, I think that there's a, I think that there's demonic activity uh, focused um, 
in local churches. Satan and the and demonic forces abominate the Christian church. And so anything they can do uh, to disrupt uh, a church or to destroy its its leaders or destroy its families, you know, he will do. And I think that that's where we have to, that's why we need to be a, a church. We need to have praying churches. We need to pray for the success of evangelism, to pray for the success of um, the preaching of the, of the word of God and, and all that. There's Art. Howdy, sir. Uh, it's good to see you today. I'm glad you're, you're doing, uh, doing better. Um, yeah, you've seen this thing. It's coming to your mind. Dan B., rock on. Love that I found you. Raised Baptist, need more, needed more and turned Catholic in college, then kept searching. I found Spurgeon and nearly cried. <laughs> Judge me. Surprised. I think I'm Calvinist. All right, you've graduated. You're all the way there. Now all we got to do is make you post-millennial and you'll be a completed Christian. Um, okay, there's Colin. He that is slow to anger is better than the mighty. He that ruleth his spirit than he that taketh the city. That's right. We don't think about strength and masculinity and manhood the way we should. We just don't. Um, we don't think of what real strength is, what real power is. Uh, there's a, a proverb that says, a gentle word breaks a bone. And I've, I've reflected on that like long ago. I was thinking, yeah, we think that if we're, if we're real harsh or come across really strong, we'll do more. A gentle word breaks a bone. Self-controlled conviction. Self-controlled yet passionate conviction. That's the thing that we're aiming at. That's where, um, that's, that's real manhood right there. Self-controlled conviction. Okay. Uh, so many people criticize boldness, yet the Bible is clear. We must be bold. That's right. It says that we must be, we have to be bold, bold, not meaning like obnoxious, uh, but bold in that we clearly, emphatically, passionately state what is true without watering it down at all. And you want to aim at, at being as clear as you can be. And when you're asked simple questions, you give simple answers to those questions. You know, always think of Tim Keller, you know, sitting there on the stage with some liberal Ivy League professor. And the professor is wanting to talk to him about homosexuality. And Keller is running from that in every possible way. He no more wanted to touch that question um, than anything, than walk across hot coals. And it was like, well, don't, do you think that, that homosexuality is a sin? Well, greed's a sin. Greed is a sin. And I'm, I just kept watching. I'm thinking, Tim, just answer his question. Answer the man's question and answer it clearly. And recognize you need to call people to repentance that say things like that, that say they're gay or, or whatever, and trust that the Lord will bless that. Now, that might mean that you never get invited back to speak to, at that liberal Ivy League school's classroom, but, well, so what? The apostles had rocks thrown at them for the things that they said. Okay, really enjoyed this series. Thanks for doing it. You're, you are very welcome. It sounds like Romans 1. Yep, indeed. Um, from San Francisco, there's Jonas. Yeah, I remember you. Um, question. What, if any, material have you read and stand behind by E.W. Uh, Bullinger? Um, E.W. Bullinger? I've heard of Heinrich Bullinger, the uh, reformer. I don't know who E.W. Bullinger uh, very bad time to be post-millennial. No, it's the best time to be post-millennial. <laughs> um, think about it like this. I've tried to describe. Here's here's the history of the world. Uh, so from the church, from the time the church started, it starts like this, but it goes like this. It's like ups and downs, but the overall trajectory is moving up. 
And the time that we're in right now, I think the church is going through a, a season of pruning and purging. I think that the apostasy is going to be coming in waves on what's left of the denominations that are out there that, that still are, at least in name, are, are conservative and still confessional. But I think, I think you're going to see more departures from them into smaller denominations that still believe something. And those smaller denominations, hopefully, eventually will be able to band together and pull their resources and work together. But I think that we um, we just need to be faithful and trust that God will, will bring things to pass in his own time. Okay, you should do a series on Ryle. Yeah, Practical Religion. That's such a great book. Yeah, the chapter on zeal. Yeah, it's very convicting stuff. What is postmillennialism? Any good reference explaining this? I mean, I believe it. I have no name for it. Postmillennialism is the idea... Uh, that the Great Commission will succeed, that we will see uh, in time massive amounts of conversion to Christ. It will only be through the gospel uh, that that happens through the proclamation of the gospel. And uh, the kingdom of God is going to grow and grow and grow. Uh, and it's going to have a great deal of influence in this world before Jesus comes back. And so that's basically, it's it's an optimistic way of looking at the future. As far as a resource, I would recommend, I'll, I'll put it over here because it's, it's uh, his last name is hard to spell, Keith, um, Keith Matheson, he was one of the speakers at the Machen Conference. Keith Matheson's book, uh, it's called Post-Millennialism and Eschatology of Hope, or yeah, or Victory, I think it's Hope. Keith Matheson, Post-Millennialism and Eschatology of Hope. Excellent, excellent book. And there's a bunch more, there's other resources, but that, that's what I would recommend. Okay, alright, wow, that... It doesn't feel like it's been 53 minutes, but as usual, always enjoy um, these times. And uh, thank you all, whoever the, the there's 15 people uh, watching right now, the live feed. That's good. Uh, love you all. Uh, and I'll see you next time. I was going to try to do some, uh, some uh, a podcast earlier, and I do want to do the game, the Making Heresy Orthodox in 60 seconds or less. And I actually have, oh, let me show you something. Uh, if I, real, real quick. I'm still here. I'm still here. I'm still here. I had a special t-shirt made. Uh, where is it? Uh, I think I, I think I might have taken it home. Or it might be in my bag. Anyway, I had a false teacher t-shirt made that has a bunch of stuff on it. So you know when I'm playing the game that I'm being the false teacher so I'm not misquoted. But anyway, uh, sorry I stepped off the screen there for a moment. But anyway, love you all. Thanks for watching or for listening. Pastor Patrick Hines of Bridwell Heights Presbyterian Church in Kingsport, Tennessee. You can visit us on the web at bridwellheightschurch.com where all the sermons and podcasts are put into our sermon audio feed, which is accessible in iTunes as well as the podcast app. You are welcome to join us any Sunday morning for Sunday school for all ages at 10 a.m. and then worship for everyone at 11 a.m. If you ever have any questions about the Christian faith or the Bible, you can email me at pastor at bridwellheightschurch.org. May the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace.